0: You know, the, the criticism of, of technologists and Silicon Valley and big tech and so on would be that they're very good at actually rolling out these big ideas. You know, they, they are the last bastion of doing that, but then they haven't fully grappled with the con- the consequences. But if you don't have these ideas, how are you going to meet the challenges of the 21st century? In order to kind of meet the challenges that face us, whether those are kind of just random natural disasters or or human made threat, I think we don't have a choice.
1: Hello everyone, my name is Stephen Parton and you are listening to The Feedback Loop on Singularity Radio, where we keep you up to date on the latest technological trends and how they're impacting the transformation of consciousness and culture. This week, my guest is Michael Baskar, who has authored several books exploring the impact of technology, specifically as it relates to the publishing and curation of content. In his latest book, The Human Frontier, The Future of Big Ideas in the Age of Small Thinking, Michael instead turns his attention towards the creation of content, and in particular, how humanity seems to be running out of big ideas. In this conversation, we delve into the many facets of Michael's theory, exploring numerous bits of evidence and examples that support his notion. We also explore how the technological singularity may be our last chance for big ideas, how cultural and philosophical tendencies are worsening the situation, what possible paths lay before us to address this lack of Moonshot innovation and so much more. We really got into a much wider breadth of topics than I expected with this conversation. So I hope you will enjoy everyone. Please welcome to the feedback loop, Michael All right, then. Well, Let's just go ahead and jump into it then. Uh, so You recently came out with your book, Human Frontiers, Future of Big Ideas in an Age of Small Thinking. Um, Getting straight to it, what was it that prompted you to want to write this book specifically? What were some of the things that you were seeing that warranted uh, your attention in the creation of this book?
0: Um, well, it was a bit of a winding journey to to actually write this book. It, it, it started out, um, I was just interested in where ideas come from. And I, I was interested in how people come up with a radically new idea in a paradigm shifting idea, something that, that was really not in, in any kind of normal context or discourse. And so I, I wanted to figure out what are the ingredients behind that kind of idea? Um, And then I got sidetracked um, doing some work in a technology company. And that made me think about how organizations give rise to ideas. And then while I was doing that research, I came across what I now call the great stagnation debate. And that is just this, this whole set bunch of people who are all in different ways coming at this idea that actually, in a lot of different ways, the past 40 years have actually been much more challenging for innovation for newness for new cultural forms new political ideas even uh, a lot of technologies than is often supposed and so i suddenly came across all of these people talking about stagnation and i thought that's interesting how does that connect up with this and so it was really thinking about new ideas thinking about this this stagnation thesis i wanted to try and put it all together so it seemed to me that there were all of these different people talking about stagnation in different ways, but actually that the common unit behind that was ideas that we weren't generating these big radical ideas as often as perhaps we used to. So I wanted to ask, is that true? And if so, will it continue?
1: Yeah. And what was it about the past 40 years or so that showed a significant shift from previous history?
0: Well, I mean, there's so much, but I guess it, th- this whole debate usually starts with um, economists and with economic evidence. So if, if anything is, is the sort of smoking gun in uh, the, the, the case against sort of um, just, just brilliant innovation and in everything, it's um, the, the flatlining of productivity growth. And, you know, that's something that's been really pronounced um, across developed economies since since really the 1970s. And there, there was a brief boom in the 90s. But since then, it's been really flat. And the thing that drives productivity growth more than anything else is new technologies and the way new technologies can come on stream and let people do more, do things in new ways and so on. So whatever the cause is you've got to explain this flatlining and productivity growth and you know one obvious explanation is that actually for whatever reason technologies just aren't translating like they used to and so so that was the first element but then you know there are so many different ways people have quantified this so just a few examples um there is evidence that, you know, patents aren't getting more influential, they're just carrying on, we're not creating patent classes any faster than we used to, it's flat. Um, Things like Moore's law, uh, you know, that's this amazing feature of the modern world, it seems, but actually, in order to maintain that rate of progress, you need to constantly have more and more and more researchers, Um, it costs more and more and more to deliver a new drug. So what it begins to look like when you sort of start digging down into all these different researchers is that things are a bit shakier than they might appear um it definitely takes a lot more people and a lot more money to deliver a new idea than it used to and you can see that teams in science way way bigger than they used to be um and so there's some sort of problem that's going on you know people can't just do you know the, the days of somebody just having a kind of amazing invention in their attic and then launching that on the world are completely gone and that just means it's harder it's trickier it's more difficult so that that's just like a very brief overview of some of it and that doesn't get into the the cultural elements or the the philosophical elements you know like it's much, much harder to quantify that. It's a subjective thing. You know, are philosophers thinking up as radical, massive ideas as they used to? Well, you know, difficult to say, but a lot, a lot of people in philosophy think, no, they're
1: not. Um, Do, Do you think we're just hitting a wall of diminishing returns in a sense where the realm of the unexplored was so vast in the history and, and once kind of like the technological era came online we've uncovered so much that as you were saying it, it takes such a scale of cooperation from a major corporation or a um, major government to organize massive teams of research with m- massive amounts of money that there's not really room for these revolutionary changes that come from like the shadowy cor- you know not the shadowy corners but from the person in the garage from the person in the attic like that single person just doesn't have enough power to uh, get into the layers of mystery and unknown that are now like so quickly receding into the shadows.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, basically the answer to that is, is yes, Uh, that, that is sort of what's going on, but I would, I would kind of unpick the causes into two separate strands. So, you know, let's, let's, You know, I don't think this this stagnation thesis is just 100% true, by the way, like, I think it is broadly the case that big ideas are being delivered, um, certainly on a sort of per capita basis, a lot less frequently than they used to be. I think there are whole Whole swathes of technology where things have continued to to move forward, often very fast. You know the kind of things that that, you know, you guys would be looking at a lot of the time. But then outside that, there are a lot of areas of technology where things have just become incremental. And you know, we've had fifty years of incremental progress, which is really nice and really great, but not necessarily just those wholesale leaps forward. So I don't think right slam dunk stagnation is just true everything is is really terrible because that's that's obviously not the case but do i think that we are failing against our potential as 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 you put it hitting diminishing returns absolutely i think we are at this point where we've hit diminishing returns for, for years and years so i try and explain that in, in one of two ways really um the first would be explanations in in the nature of ideas themselves, and and just in the point that we've reached in intellectual history, and we can come back to that. And secondly, I'd I'd put it in societal factors where society is throwing up all of these blockers to progress to actively making things difficult for people to have really extreme radical ideas. So I think you touched on both of those. And you know, I'm happy to go into more detail.
1: Yeah, please. I mean, I think you mentioned um, in the description of the book that short termism, risk aversion and frac- uh, fractious decision making is um, leading to a cautious and unimaginative world. Is that the latter that you're discussing there, the kind of barriers that are being put in place on a more um, policy level?
0: Exactly. Exactly. Um and you know I, yes that 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 is those societal features that just mean we are we are not building a world in 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 any way that is optimized for you know big thinking for really just outside thinking um and actually i don't think it's happening necessarily at a policy level because you know i think with with policy you can often be quite considered i think it's almost like a sub policy level where it's just these forces that are permeating everything. Um, so, you know, like risk aversion, for example, I think, you know, let, let me give you an example of that. Um, you know, the, the, something like, and, and I'm not sure, the exa- I've forgotten the exact number, but the, the, something like the first 15 or 16 people who had a liver transplant died. Um, if you tried doing a clinical trial where the first 15 or 16 people died today, that's getting shut down, you know, that's really unethical. But of course, like, you know, then what if the 17th person lives, and then, you know, the nth person lives, you know, nowadays, there will be laws and, and ethics committees that will shut that down. And, you know, quite understandably, quite rightly, but, you know, if you want to do treatments like that, that is potentially the kind of risk that you need to do. I mean, although, you know, actually, there there was the the, the case just just the other day, of somebody who had that the heart that was grown in a pig um, transplanted, and they were the first to have that, and they they survived. You know, perhaps we are getting better. A- another example of of risk aversion. You know, companies have shut down a lot of their fundamental research activity. So you know, you go back to the heyday of something like Bell Labs in the post-war era, and you know, it's a golden age of U.S. corporate laboratories in places like Kodak and DuPont and so on. Bell Labs probably preeminent among them you know a single corporate lab that invented so many technologies that that would define the 20th century um now that really only exists in a handful of tech companies um you know what what the research shows is that businesses do continue to invest in R&D to quite a high level um but they invest in the D they're looking at development they're not really looking at foundational research you know Chemicals companies used to have publication track records um, akin to places like MIT and Harvard. They definitely don't now. Um, So, you know, what are companies doing? Companies need to please investors. They need to be putting money out. They need to demonstrate a return on all of their activities. You know, Bell Labs was just allowed to do whatever it wanted in a very vague way. But CEOs now, there's, there's no kind of, policy that says that you know um ph- pharmaceutical companies can't just run completely blue skies laboratories but they, they don't really there's there's no kind of you know Pfizer as far as I know doesn't have a kind of an equivalent of DeepMind or open AI that's just a, a sort of real like research organization and that's just this pressure
1: yeah do you think that pressure is actually exactly what I was thinking about but I'm wondering is it is it maybe a case of the capitalistic tendencies kind of running amuck and going too far maybe the playing field being tilted too much because a little as you're saying this a lot of what i'm thinking about is you know a lot of people you know in america at least there's a insane stat that something like 70% of people don't have more than $500 in savings so if something happens in their life they're completely incapable of you know, managing a major accident or health issue, you're going to be really risk averse if that's the situation you're in in your life. There's not a lot of room for research or thinking. There's mostly just a drive to make ends meet. And I see that not only in the, you know, in the working class, but it feels like because we're in such a hyper competitive global economy, that same kind of, you know, we can't make a single mistake or we lose our edge and maybe we'll die as a company mentality uh exist in our major corporations and for that reason you're not seeing that money being spent on things that seem frivolous perhaps like research uh
0: yeah i think that is is just all definitely happening and you know I, I think as you say there is there is a big problem here with with capitalism i don't think it's a problem with the sort of idea of capitalism it's a problem of the instantiation that we have so it's it's a kind of just a hyper return oriented financialized capitalism that that isn't balanced by anything else. But, you know, also on the other side, you know, I think there are like incredible sort of bureaucratic pathologies that are, you know, not necessarily related to, to the kind of business system, um, that, that have exactly the same effect. So if you're uh, a, a young researcher in academia, you know, It's so hard to get a job and you just need to get citations, you need to get published. And if you don't get either of those things, you don't get grant money, you're never going to get a job in this massive pressure. So, you know, are you going to do what, you know, somebody like, you know, Einstein did, went off, become a patent clerk and write a few papers or Max Planck, just take 20 years to kind of come up with your great idea. No, you can't. You, and 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 are you going to go off on a really wacky tangent, just doing something that your like sort of supervisors say that is a batshit crazy idea? No way, you know, because that's your career on the line. Um, and so you know the whole academic system, like it 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 prioritizes safe work that you know is going to get you published, that you know is going to get the um you know the the the, the credit from your peers. And you know this this isn't just sort of hearsay there's there's a lot of studies that are are being done on this you know there's a great field now of like the you know, sort of economics of science and scientometrics looking at this and yet you know academic work clusters in things that are gonna get citations, and that often is quite safe you know these pressures it's it's like there are all these financial pressures there are these bureaucratic pressures um and and bizarrely all of those kind of bureaucratic pressures of box ticking of yeah not wanting to actually kind of risk anything I've have most big businesses are really subject to them as well I think there is just this incredibly um fractious polarized environment around ideas I think people don't feel like they can uh, speak freely, or or else they're just being kind of pointless provocateurs. There's a need to constantly get attention, and so go for the sort of cheap shot. The whole the whole system, from the way universities are built to how companies fund research to how social media infects the whole public discussion, all of this just adds up into a kind of I I think it's like a pressure cooker that is just creating. Um, an environment where if you want to work on really difficult, really long term, really out there things, makes your life difficult. And, you know, it doesn't need to be like that. You know, on paper, we've got many more brilliant people who could be working. They have access to tools that, you know, even very near ancestors could scarcely have ever dreamed of. Um, actually, you know, since even the time of Bell Labs, the world has grown immeasurably richer. So, you know, it should be able to fund more of this. And yet these sort of insidious forces that, you know, just go on enumerating, just suffocate radical thinking.
1: Yeah, you you mentioned the cultural side of things there, specifically with social media that I find quite interesting, because without being too cynical about it, I feel like somebody who shares something that is uh, very genuine, very curious, a a big idea, something like that on social media is going to get way less attention in their sincerity uh, of thought than somebody who shares something outrageous and thought provoking and controversial. And it seems like, you know, very much that social media is now tied to economic growth. And for a lot of people, they want those likes and follows to make the income that they need to survive. So there's this massive incentive chain to not really think deeply or in interesting ways because that doesn't get the attention or ad revenue that uh, seems to be dominating that economic landscape.
0: Yeah, I think that is completely a dynamic. Like, um, you know, there's a few things sort of going on there. Like one is just that there's this massive production of content and so everything gets buried it's actually very hard to kind of sift through you know for all we know like the, the the paper that is going to change physics or change economics just got published yesterday but you know perhaps it's just stuck in such an obscure part of the internet that nobody's ever going to see it um or maybe it'll take 20 years for it to be discovered and and kind of come out so there's stuff gets buried in the deluge then there's all of yeah just the incentives to um to just go for eyeballs and clicks and just to be outrageous and to be really sort of partisan and then there's just the 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 sort of extreme politicization of almost any statement such that you know if you are trying to venture something that is new you know everyone's watching themselves everyone's coming at it from a certain angle Um, you know, on the one hand, you've got people like, you know, presidents and prime ministers who disparage experts and expertise and think that's terrible. On the other hand, you've got a whole bunch of people who who effectively want to just close down a load of topics. Um, you know, all of this from every side is just, just crushing down on things.
1: This feels like it harkens back to your previous book, um, about curation and, it feels like maybe that is a potential solution. I mean, do you think there that there's a lot of power in curation to help us solve this crisis of big ideas?
0: Um, do you know i I, I think y- yes, and actually, it's not really a uh, uh, a connection that I've really made very much, to be honest. And and this is the first time someone's actually kind of put put the two together. So yeah, before I wrote Human Frontiers, which is is looking at you know. Yeah, really what what might be causing blocks in our ideas and what might reaccelerate them. Yeah, I wrote a book called Curation, uh, The Power of Selection in a World of Excess. And, you know, the, the thesis there was that in a world where you just have absolutely mushrooming data and stuff where there's just more and more of everything, so much of the value is going to move to not just producing more, but being able to choose and select and arrange from within that. That curation becomes a really, really kind of big salient point. Um, and you know, actually, I wrote that before things like you know, the the Brexit referendum and and the Trump election. And you know, actually. The nature of curating information on the internet went from being sort of oh well that's a nice kind of tech business thing to being suddenly being this like geopolitical issue, and so you know it it really this issue of who sees what why um, really exploded in into the discussion. Um, but yeah, I absolutely think that better ways of curating would would help get um, get things kind of. The attention they deserve to filter out all of this noise that's just been created that that is really unhelpful and you know what one thing I always said with curation actually and this is where again it dovetails is that you know curation today is not going to be you know just pure machine curation fine pure human curation great but actually it's it's interesting combinations of both are probably what is going to be dominating in the 21st century you know we just have too much information and too much stuff for for human beings to process it all but actually at the same time we want the narrative and we want the personal insight and the story and the expertise of of human judgment as well and it's these combinations and I think that is definitely true in ideas it's going to be the way we put together cutting-edge technology just with with just old-fashioned imagination and expertise that is going to be what will find these ideas, but also what will cause them in the first place.
1: Yeah, you know, continuing this merger between the two thoughts, uh, actually, a fellow countryman of yours, Alan Moore, uh, if you're familiar with the comic book artist, he Indeed, he has yeah. one of my favorite quotes. Uh, this is the second time I think I've used this on a podcast in a row. So I apologize to listeners. But uh, he's basically saying, you know, like advertisers and uh, people in retail are using jingles to get people having the same banal thoughts at the same time so that everyone's on the same kind of like a wave of hypnosis or they're subdued by the same, you know, uh, mainstream thoughts. And as I'm hearing you talk about curation, these big ideas, I'm wondering if like the echo chambers that are being created by curation now that the power is in the hands of the masses are creating areas that are just so standardized in thought that you're not seeing those sparks those uh associative kind of moments where a lightning bolt of something new comes into your vision and it makes you think in a creative way and i'm wondering if that kind of sameness of of this global economy is hurting our ability to think in creative ways
0: so yeah and that's something that i've been asked about a lot is that well yeah surely actually it's the kind of hyper curated filter bubbles that we all live in that are causing lots of problems and are taking all of the surprise and interest out of the world and i say yes that's true so curation is is kind of doing that but the answer to that is not less curation it's better curation it's like more considered stuff that is actually mixing things up you know we don't have an option but for things to be curated you know like every time you open a newspaper that's the editor has curated what stories are in it you know someone's chosen that and carefully arranged the layout of it so you know you need curation is just everywhere but there are good forms of it and bad forms of it and we need to prioritize the good forms of it that are about yeah breaking out of just really reductive um locked in filter bubbles so you know that that's the distinction we need to make. We need more good curation that is is capable of, yeah, just getting over the really bland, crappy, just same old that that you know inevitably we often get stuck in. and and you know to be honest, I think a lot of um again, this this is i you know I haven't been talking about this for a while, but you know when when I started writing curation, which was you know probably let's say twenty thirteen something like spotify a web service had terrible curation you know it really was awful but by now spotify has invested hundreds of millions of dollars in buying like music recommendation services hiring dj's to produce playlists just having tons of music experts in the company who put together all of this stuff and actually now the curation is fantastic they you know they you know I, maybe I would say this but they they sort of saw that the value out of the curation was so important you know you've got 40 million songs you need to curate that well and actually you know people like what they like but you also need to help get them into new stuff you know so anyway so it's, it's all far-ish from from I guess from from big ideas but you know, there are a lot of other ways that it does connect. So, so you look at the literature on where ideas come from. And, you know, what is a new idea? Well, it's generally a combination of existing ideas. So, you know, there's no such thing as just a, an idea that's totally out of nowhere. It's always putting together things in, in really original ways. And this is something that actually people have been studying in a lot of detail. And, and there's a lot of evidence that It's when you put together things that on the surface are really far apart, that are really kind of oddly matched, that's when it gets really interesting. You know, you study what research makes the kind of biggest long term impact. And it's when you get researchers and research teams that go from their area of expertise and they do what's called a research expedition or knowledge expedition into something they don't really know much about. and that's often when you see a kind of Nobel Prize winning breakthrough, when it's something that's a bit out of people's comfort zone, when when ideas from really odd parts of the world, surprisingly come together. So you know, in a way that that is a kind of curation, I, big ideas come from people who are capable of seeing the links, seeing the possibilities in things that on the face of it just have have nothing to do with one another.
1: Yeah, I mean, this goes back a little bit to what we were talking about before in terms of, um, I guess, predictions, Um, but one of the things with singularity that, you know, is a big part of our message is that when the singularity happens, you're going to have these disparate technologies, these different ideas, like you said, these kind of like uh, things that might be considered knowledge, knowledge expedition type tangents. Um, coming together all at once, like AI, virtual reality, all these different things. And at that point when they connect, it unlocks a moment, the singularity, as we like to think of it, where beyond that horizon, it's impossible to predict what's going to happen because it's such a nebulous. uh, It's just such a powerful combination of technologies that it seems almost impossible to predict what they're going to do do you think part of the issue that we might be running into is this fact that now we are getting into this time period where to have a big idea means to look into a time that is so fuzzy as, as to be just completely unpredictable?
0: Um, maybe, but I mean, you know, I think there, there are a few elements to, to that. Like one is that I think, um, you know, and, and this is something that I don't know, but I think we might be getting to, in some areas, to a stage of sufficient kind of complexity that it is it is push, pushing at the boundaries of what we can do. You know, sort of we human beings can do. And I, I don't know that. Um, it's 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 the prospect, though, of something you know, like the singularity. You know, whether whether you know people call it that or not but the fact that there are and you know this is something that i think is is really important and, and is a big part of the book is that with whatever you call it there's a suite of tools that are being built right now that are probably the most powerful tool set that has ever been constructed um and it is already starting to re-accelerate science and, and to, to, to push things forward in in just incredible ways, you know, think about stuff that's come out of a, an organization like DeepMind to crack the protein folding problem. They've got a 50 year grand challenge in biology that machine learning now has effectively solved in a, in a very speedy amount of time. Um, new ideas in mathematics and material science um in physics all of it is relying on on kind of really cutting-edge machine learning and ai techniques so already this stuff is starting to push things forward like you know talk about vr like i i do think something like vr is going to introduce a lot of new political aesthetic sort of anthropological sociological ideas that are still kind of you know quite emergent but you know it's effectively you're you're turning the universe into um a kind of experimental playground for these kind of ideas in a way that is is simply impossible uh in any other form so all of that is going to be huge um and yeah i think it's already reaccelerating ideas so it's one of the things that actually makes me quite optimistic like i think yeah outside digital technology there's been massive amounts of stagnation but this coming generation of tools that is being built now is is different. However, kind of all-encompassing we thought digital technology was up to this point, you know, when it's kind of autonomous uh, and it can learn and it is it is capable of these levels of sort of simulation, then you know, that that is extraordinary. But you know, just 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 to come back on the last sort of point, or well, another point about the singularity is. I do sort of think that that is the last human big idea that that will be at the very frontier. You know, like the the frontiers of knowledge and possibility, as far as we know, in sort of ideational terms, has always been the human frontier. And it's always been humanity that, you know, as far as we know, is the thing that is pushing back the frontier of, of knowledge and culture and so on in the universe, as far as we know. But, you know, as and when should we get to a singularity? That That is the last time humans are ever at the frontier. That's the last big idea that we have.
1: After that, it's cyborgs, artificial intelligence, something like that.
0: Yeah, you know, and, and, and it may be, you know, it may be then that there's a kind of, infinite space of possibility that it can can explore but it may be that actually you know there there are just sort of certain points of saturation that are, are reached quite quickly you know perhaps there is a kind of just like ground state of explanation that it can reach and there we go perhaps you know it is capable of exploring you know, such a kind of infinite range of aesthetic forms in such a short space of time that it's, you know, it's, it's kind of complete. We just don't know, of course, as you say, you know, the right. event horizon of that is is what it is.
1: You mentioned, so we covered a little bit the AI and the technological side of things there. I believe you mentioned in the book that China has a role to play as well uh, in this future, correct? In yeah, the process not of just big ideas. China.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean, definitely, obviously, China... In, in a big way but i mean what so you know yeah so what what will reaccelerate ideas well one it's the new tool set with with ai as you know the linchpin of that but then you know stuff like anything from vr to you know synthetic biology and the whole sort of emerging world of biotech that that could become a kind of platform for development in the way that computers have been um that's one thing that i think is is already having the impact and the second is the fact that, you know, when when you look throughout history, um, the places that have pushed back the frontier at any given moment are are remarkably concentrated. You know, it, it's it's always been the case that, you know, like one civilization and within that perhaps just a few cities were the place that were pushing back the frontier. And, you know, that that's been true until pretty recently, you know, um you know, in the 20th century, you know, where if if you want to be a Nobel Prize winner in physics, say, you you probably lived in Germany, France, the UK, or the coasts of the US. Um, And within that, you probably lived in about, you know, let's face it, six, six cities, maybe. And within that, maybe 10 universities. So, you know, basically 10 universities, Um, Ten departments of physics were the whole frontier of our understanding of the universe, um, which is, you know, crazily concentrated, really. But what I think is happening now is there's the kind of biggest just injection of human capital in history is happening right now because the frontier is becoming available to almost everyone. You know, countries are getting much richer. Richer. Pretty much everywhere, and although you know there's, there's still a shocking amount of poverty, there's more opportunity than there has been ever before. There are more people than ever before. They are better educated than ever before, thanks to the internet. They have access to information and tools that would have been unimaginable previously. So suddenly, the frontier is like wide open to billions of people. Um, suddenly, you have a country like China that you know a generation ago could not really have supported much building world leading um, research institutes, technology companies, think tanks, and so on. You know, already ch- China is setting pace in a lot of areas in biotech, um, in AI, building hypersonic missiles that, you know, even the US doesn't have. Um, investing, something like go- Chinese government investing $15 billion a year in quantum computing when, you know, the UK is putting, you know, double digit millions at most. Um, that That is a huge change in what is possible, you know, and, and it's not just China, it's India, it's Latin America, it's places in Africa, you know, even somebody in Nigeria in, you know, really poor part, still might have access to a smartphone and still might be able just to start learning and start pushing at the frontier. So, yeah, this is just the first time in history the frontier has ever been possible for people to get to like that and yeah i I think this is kind of a one-time moment from here global population starts going down i think from you know this is the moment when that is really coming on stream probably really the past 15 years and then it'll continue to play out for the last 30 years for sorry the next 30 years you know so we've got You know, we humanity have 30 years to make this happen, um, where there will be literally billions of people um, potentially capable of contributing and winning a Nobel Prize in physics.
1: Yeah, well, you know, to bring a bit of a devil's advocate to this, I guess, one thing I'm wondering is, is it possible that this great stagnation or the slowdown of big ideas might actually be a good thing? Because... You know, I do. I'm a postdoc actually in England, and um, uh, um sorry, not postdoc, doing postgrad in England. And my research is really interested in kind of how the world is becoming maladaptive because of technology. And you know, with singularity, the idea is when you approach a singularity, things speed up really quickly. And I'm wondering if maybe in some ways a slowdown is good because too much change at once can be really disorienting and can, and can make it really hard for us to adapt. Um, so, you know, I'm wondering, is there a possibility in your mind at all that a slowdown is actually a good thing to help us get our bearings straight?
0: The short answer is maybe, <laughs> <Fair> um, <enough. laughs> and, and, and I, I don't believe that, um, big ideas are just uncomplicatedly good things. Um, I think that would be incredibly naive, you know. Um, so, so an example of a big idea that I I talk about in the book is nuclear power and nuclear technologies, because you know that that's an example of where, you know, in the 1930s that's really kind of out there frontier physics. Just over a decade later, it's you know being deployed live. Um, you know, obviously that that is a massively important technology and and an incredible advance, but you know. Is a nuclear weapon a good thing? Well, probably not actually, because it can destroy the world. So, you know, it is definitely a big idea that was delivered. um, But do we want lots of big ideas like that? Um, No, you know, AI is a big idea that is accelerating a lot of other big ideas. But do we want some like badly optimized AI just kind of going crazy? No, of course not. That's a disaster. Big ideas are not uncomplicatedly good things, you know even if you think about a big idea like um, Copernicus or Darwin, they rocked people's world. People hated them. It's it's destabilizing. You know, big ideas are paradigm shifters. and, And there are a lot of losers in that. There are a lot of people who feel their world is kind of ripped apart. So it's definitely not easy to claim that they are just purely good things. I think for, for me generally in things like science or or art or thought they, they probably are i think you can probably say they are but definitely not in technology and and you know the, the criticism of of technologists and silicon valley and big tech and so on would be that they're very good at actually rolling out these big ideas you know they, they are the last bastion of doing that but then they haven't fully grappled with the con the consequences and that's kind of left to society to then like work out what the hell How how the hell we're going to manage these ideas? But here's the thing. I mean, if you don't have these ideas, how are you going to meet the challenges of the twenty first century? You know, how are you going to make sure um, you know eight, nine, ten billion people are kept fed and safe in an age of climate change? How are you going to actually create the governance mechanisms that might deal with a technology like AI? You know you in order to kind of meet the challenges that face us, whether those are kind of just random natural disasters or, or human made threats. I think we don't have a choice, but to, to keep things moving.
1: Yeah. Is there so, a, is there a particular domain that you, um, I guess are most concerned about not moving fast enough or that you are most interested in seeing move faster or that you think has the most potential and, and the realm of big ideas? Um,
0: I actually you know I, that's a really interesting question and I I don't think I've been asked that which is a interesting because actually I think that is really important do you know like what I would really love to see more more sort of innovation in is is political ideas because actually I think like you know we are seeing potentially this like you know w- what happened broadly in technology is that all the innovation went into computational technologies and things like building um much better airplanes just kind of didn't really happen you know And we basically had the same airplane but a bit safer and a bit nicer for the last 60 years but actually you know we, we went to the moon in 69 for a few years afterwards and then it stopped but actually in things like that we are starting to see Green shoots, you know people are piling money into things like fusion power into new new forms of transportation, the kind of stuff that actually really did stagnate, but you know what we 're not seeing is a kind of real meaningful evolution of the political debate we 're kind of stuck in the same old things of left and right, tax and spend, authoritarian governments versus the sort of ailing grinding to a halt liberal democracies like. I really think that, you know, Francis Fukuyama, much misunderstood, kind of made the point that, yeah, you know, what what the end of history is for him is just that, that there's not any kind of progress or evolution in the sort of fundamental ideas animating states. And and I think there is a truth in that. And I, I think, you know, is it the case that we just arrived at the best possible way of organizing society and that was it? I mean, that feels like it would be surprising, yet we've given up trying to think of better ways of doing it in in a kind of broad canvas way. So that is the area. And, you know, I don't think we'll get things like the governance of AI right, or the governance of synthetic biology right, or managing the risks of climate change, or or even kind of, you know, above it all, transitioning with something like the singularity. I don't think we'll get that right unless you have the right organization of society and you know let's face it let's look out there at where the us is where china is like is it ideal <laughs> you know no um or, or britain of course no
1: yeah so in that regard as we kind of come to a wrap here like do you see an ideal path forward like do you think we need to have the big ideas in the political sphere before we worry too much about the other big ideas? Uh, you know, is there any kind of solution that you see to this problem?
0: Um, not really, because I think ideas are so kind of interlinked that, um, you know, they will spark off each other. And that, that's why I do think that it what what is potentially likely is that, you know, these, these new tech technological big ideas might give rise to new political ideas. And you're starting to see that with a lot of the discussion around web three. I mean, I I don't sort of agree with a lot of that discussion and think that in many ways, it might be a bit dangerous, but it's certainly new and interesting and is suggesting something like new political forms. So I don't think you can just say, right, we need to go and think about, you know, big political ideas. And I think when people do that, there's, there's You know, on the one hand, you might have really great ideas like those that went into the US Constitution or went into the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Or you might have really bad political big ideas like, you know, those of any number of insane dictators who had kind of visionary ideologies. So I think, you know, political big ideas are are just as dangerous as sort of technological big ideas. And so I would wouldn't just say, right, everyone go off and think up a mad new ideology. but I would say, you know, we we have to kind of believe that it, there are still things that we can do. But where that comes from, I don't know. And I suspect it's going to come from really kind of unexpected and organic mixings of different areas. You know, when we have economists working with AI people, working with composers or something like that, that's that's where like the next great sort of political concept might come from
1: yeah that's a future I look forward to. Well, Michael man, I really appreciate this conversation before we uh, jump off here. Is there anything you'd like to point people's attention toward towards anything you'd like to promote or talk about that you're working on? Anything at all?
0: Well, I mean, I guess there's there's the book. Um, you know, have a look. Uh, and yeah, just just look look me up on Twitter and say hello. i'm I'm always interested in chatting and uh, yeah, discussing this kind of thing more.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for your time, Michael. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for having me.